Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. What happened to the lice? You remember that? That was from last week. We have no idea what happened. It just, you know, the, the lice, bugs, gnats, something. Something came and went. They were like dust covered everybody, super annoying, yada, yada. That's all right. On to the next one. Round four between Moses and the Pharaoh. Here we do get uh, a couple shifts in the way things are presented. And again, I don't think God's upping the ante to get meaner. I think he, I think he just continues to give Pharaoh the opportunity to see that he's he's up against a a mighty powerful being of love and light. And he's helping them. Ideally, I think he's trying to help um, Pharaoh to understand that the the beings that he worships and that he spends his time uh, um, directing people toward and his priests, you know, look for power from are not, it's not that they're uh, stupid and uh, don't have any power. It's that uh, they are powerful, but not as powerful as God. Now, I do know that this is really difficult for people who really want God to be in control of all things, including the evil, but we've been through this so many times, and I think that this book continues to help us see what's, you know, the, the opportunities to ask our questions, which we will continue to do, which is, what if God is good? <laughs> What if he's actually only light, that he's not dualistic in his being? What if we were just consistent with what God looked like and he shows up just like Jesus? I just, just, I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy, but hey, I'm just a podcast. I'm sitting alone in an RV making recordings. I mean, how, it's, it's not like you're joining my church or anything. Just ask yourself the question. It's worth it. It's a, nothing else. It's a reasonable thing for you to be able to do if what you believe is so undeniably accurate. Now, along uh, for, for today, for today, I want to look at this. I just want to remember that the people of Egypt have also been under dictatorial rule since Joseph. Now, if you uh, if you recall season two, Joseph was the one who moved Egypt from that 10 province slash governor rulers, where only one of them was the lead governor. Uh, and and they would rotate amongst the, uh, the 10 as to who was the, quote, pharaoh, the one who was, going, who was kind of the lead governor, the one who would call the meetings, the one that would set the agenda, the one that would listen, you know, basically make sure everybody got along. Joseph was the one that changed that because he started to, one, he was pulled out of prison by that Pharaoh and maybe out of gratefulness and maybe out of just uh, an understanding of how to get things done. He, he did everything in the name of that Pharaoh. And uh, it says that, you know, um, he basically, yeah, he turned that guy from a governor who happened to be in power at the time and would have to switch out. He turned him into a powerful pharaoh 
um, that that made the other governors weaker. And he and he took the power and authority to the extreme. And he did all this, remember, by collecting all the nation's wealth and the future tributes that they would need in order to get the food from Egypt during the time of famine. He, he made them all subservient to Egypt for years to come in the name of the Pharaoh. In other words, he was gathering that wealth in the name of this Pharaoh. So this Pharaoh now had the authority for years to come based on the income and the economic force that Egypt would be because at the end of the, of the famine, even though everybody, everybody else's country and tribe and nations would be recovering, they still owed, in essence, um, taxes, if you want to call it that. They still owed tribute back to Egypt for keeping them alive. And that would keep the rest of the world subservient to Egypt for years to come. And Pharaoh became the most powerful being. And it's not that there wasn't, you know, other provinces and governors, but the, the role had shifted from a rotating place of power so that no one really held power for very long. And no one, you know, it was kind of like term limits. And I know that there are many who are very much in favor of it because those who stay in power tend to want to keep power. And that's exactly what happened here. The pharaoh was empowered by the other governors, and, and, and then he was empowered by, by money and influence and authority. And Joseph's the one who did that. Now, I, I have heard in philosophy courses, right, that the most effective form of leadership is a benevolent dictatorship. Now, I know that there's this, there's discussion about that because could you actually be a loving dictator because dictators tend not to give choices, and that's the difference between a dictator and God. God is a loving being, but a benevolent or loving dictator is somebody who doesn't allow choices. They are going to force their will upon the people, but in concept, if they're kind about it and understand the people and show love toward the people and at least or at least mercy toward the people then they are the 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 reason why it's effective is because they don't get stopped up in discussions with the community you don't get slowed down in in having to explain yourself in 15 or 20 different meetings and eventually go through with the idea and i think honestly i think a lot of churches run this way I've seen it. I know. I know a lot of businesses run that way. They're not necessarily benevolent, but they are dictatorship. And it's the same with churches. The people up top or the board that's on top may be very nice people in and of themselves, but they they rule, and nobody really gets a say. Now there are other churches I know that are run differently. They have congregational churches, or they have. Uh, you know, family meetings or whatever, and there's voting that takes place, and that often that honestly can get crazy. I know I've seen it, so I don't know what the best thing is. I just happen to go off on this whole tangent. So, thank you very much, Bob, for talking in my ear and saying, Get back to your notes. So, on with the notes. All right, so all that whole group of governors, they're not they're they've they lost power. Hundred, you know, hundreds of years ago at this point. But I bring that up to remind us that the Egyptian people also lost that kind of communal rulership, this idea of rotating authority and power so that nobody held on to power for very long, so that if you didn't like the 
what was going on, you knew that eventually that would get switched out. And when you're in power in that kind of rotation, you know that if you have an idea that really isn't going over well and you decide you're going to implement it anyway, you know that it's only going to last until you're no longer in power and then everybody will, in essence, change what's going on. So you might do an experiment and be like, well, I'm going to do it anyways because I think it's what's best for the country. And then in, you know, three years or five years or whatever, when you got, you know, when so-and-so takes over, if you want to change it, you can change it. But I think it's best for the country. And maybe they let it go. I don't know. But that kind of communal leadership, it does. It 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 uh, does it doesn't dissolve. It uh, diminishes. It diminishes the 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 power it distributes it and it allows the the impact of what you want to be communal it's it's actually i i like the concept i really do and i and uh i know that it involves a lot more conversation i do it's kind of like a really good discipline or of a child involves a lot of conversation because it's not the behavior you're trying to understand or trying to correct you're really trying to correct the heart. You're trying to understand what they're thinking. You're trying to understand what they're feeling so that at the so that the the behavior becomes something that you can talk about as a circumstance and you're not talking about the the child. The child isn't the one who starts to feel bad the, uh, about themselves. They understand that their behavior is something that needs to be adjusted because the idea of community is being broken because of their anger or their selfishness or their violence or whatever, their rage. All right. Uh, I know. I probably, anyways, on with the notes. So the, the Egyptians, people, right, they know at this point that they have a ruler who makes all their decisions. They look at their country. Their country is, is considered a world power, right? They look at their race as as. Egyptians as something that's superior to other people around, to other countries around. Even if they look and sound the same, it doesn't matter. You're an Egyptian, you consider yourself to be elite, even if you're just a regular old person in Egypt. And the educational system in Egypt is world-renowned. Everybody who is anybody sends their children to Egypt to be educated. All the ambassadors you know, the, the prime job to get is to be the ambassador to Egypt so your children can go to their schools. The, the rich merchants send their, send their kids to Egypt for school. It is unmatched, and you can check that out, you know, archaeologically. archaeologically? You can check ancient history. <laughs> it's known throughout, throughout literature and science and math. They are unmatched. Their army is unmatched and basically undefeated. And that comes that goes all the way back to Joseph. Because at Joseph's time, the rest of the world was so decimated because of the famine. And Egypt's wasn't. Egypt was able to maintain their army. So when the whenever somebody pushed back from paying tribute, Egypt was able to force their tribute. And if they refused, then they would run the country for a while. And then eventually put somebody in power there that would pay tribute. Like it's, it's a it's a fascinating thing. The economy of Egypt was moving, uh, and and could handle some economic turndowns or an occasional famine. Like it was really a powerful country. Uh, 
and probably quite beautiful. And it was on its way to what I would call its golden years. It really was. Now, the Exodus, I think, put that on hold for a while, but it was it was on its way to some amazing um, shifts in the in the in the history of the world. Now, because of all the things that are going on, even even with the nation of, of immigrants that are living in some really nice area of their country, they, they may be annoying, but probably in some pockets of the Egyptian mindset, it's like, well, you know, they keep to themselves. They're, we can't really operate without them. We've become incredibly dependent upon them, but they don't try to influence us, and they don't try to marry us, and they they have their own God that they worship. Like, so that separation kind of worked both ways. For the Hebrews, it became something that they could look to and hang on to and be like, well, at least if our even if our God put us in slavery, at least we're going to trust the fact that he put, it, he put us in slavery, and it's not the Egyptians. They still... They still could kind of push back against this idea that that they were slaves of the Egyptians, but they were still, you know, slaves. They were still uh, required to pay these taxes of labor in order to stay there and be fed there, and uh, they they did that. And I think for you know early on in this, they did it willingly. After Joseph died and things started to shift, I, I think they stepped into it willingly, and we've covered that before. So the Egyptian people, in their own way, they are slaves to the culture of their government. Because it is a dictatorship, they do see the government as the one who provides everything for them. And they see their leader as the one that they need to support or everything they get from the government would be lost. Now, I'm not saying that the ones who live far away from the Nile feel the same way about about their their pharaoh as the one who lives right alongside the Nile, close to the seat of power. But if you study, again, archaeology, right, pretty much the, 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 the Nile is heavily populated, and the fertile soil out, you know, that extends from the Nile is heavily populated. And then as you get further and further out, it gets less and less populated. So... It's one of those uh, one of those um, uh, demographical things that you just I like being aware of when when this story is being told. So as they look at uh, their pharaoh, it's somebody that they love. It's a, because they kind of need to. Uh, they don't think their pharaoh is going to lose his job. He's not going to get shifted out by a vote or shifted out by another governor whose turn it is. They understand that they are, um, you know, that their pharaoh is surrounded by people who support him and sometimes prop him up. Their pharaoh is trained in the arrogance of power and he and leadership, and he runs the whole country like that. He, he has, you know, he understands his role, that not only does he lead the country, but at some level he probably considers himself the, the country, like whatever you do to him, you do to the nation. <laughs> I laugh because in a much smaller sense, I've met some pastors like this over my years where they just, they like anything that happens in the church, they take this like huge burden of responsibility, this emotional cost, like they're constantly exhausted because there's always things going on. It's like, well, 
you know, was that something you ran? No, I didn't run it, but it was going on. Like, well, is that something you worked on? No, I didn't work there. No, I didn't. No, no. Somebody else took care of it all. But it's just exhausting knowing that this is going on. That's the kind of mentality I think sometimes that the Pharaoh has because everything run, everything going on in the country, he takes credit for. Therefore, he's also at some level emotionally connected to it all. Now, he knows as Pharaoh, as any arrogant person does, we've talked about before, he doesn't think he's ever wrong. And if he's ever wronged anybody, he would, it would be, uh, to admit that would be absolutely, you know, out of, out of the, out of his mind. You'd just be out of your mind to think that he would hurt anybody. And if anybody is hurt by him, clearly that's their problem, not his. So in all of this, remember, Moses has been trained in this as well. He's only been out of it for 40 years. And I'm sure as he's in that environment, a lot of it's coming back to him and he sees it all. Very seldom does does this kind of governmental system shift. And it takes years to shift back. And that's why I think a lot of times uh, in churches, people push for change, but it's just a lot easier to start a new church than it is to change an old church because of the way most churches, not all, but the way most churches are governed, you really have to change this this uh, emotional, benevolent dictatorship mindset of the people on top or the person on top, depending on, on what's going on. And it's really hard to do that from within. And then when you become a part of the system to try and change it, you're usually quickly marginalized, not always, but usually you're marginalized because they thought they could trust you, but it turns out you just keep suggesting things that don't go along with what the pastor said he would really like to do or what the executive board came, you know, they made the decision, now they bring it to you to vote on and you dissent. Well, that's not the kind of support and loyalty we're looking for. This is the work of God. And here, Pharaoh would feel the same way. He'd be like, nope, this is the work of God. Like, I've made, I've already told you what we're doing. <laughs> this is the work of God. So Moses, I'm sure, is looking around. He sees a lot of this. So he understands, he does understand better than even the Hebrews who have lived there their whole lives. He does understand the way that this system works. And he understands, I think, even more than anyone, what Pharaoh is going through when he's up against these these uh, this power struggle in the spirit realm, because Moses hung out with his grandfather, Moses was was being keyed in to be the, a ruler in Egypt, and he understands like this is this is a power struggle, this goes really deep, and and that's why I think he's waiting like he waits for the Lord to tell him what to do, because he knows. This is not a simple decision that Pharaoh needs to make. He's we are asking Pharaoh to change a a deep level paradigmic shift to give permission for the Israelites to go out of the out outside the borders and worship their god. I mean that's still the request. It's it's bizarre and Moses understands it. He understands it deeply. Now, it says, on with the verses, at verse 20 of, of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, see again, the Lord, Moses and God are in this together. They are having, I think, moment-by-moment conversations, but at the very least, let's call them daily conversations, where God is speaking with Moses, and Moses, Moses is interacting with him. 
And here he gets the call. He says, get up early in the morning. I want you to confront Pharaoh. I want you to go talk to him again. When he goes down to the river, say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. And I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. So this is an interesting interaction. He says, all right, I want you to go to Pharaoh when he goes down to the river. Again, I don't know if this is a daily uh, interaction that Mo, that Pharaoh has with, with the deity of the Nile, or if this is just a, a weekly wash that he does. I, I have no idea. I'm sure that there are other people around. He doesn't walk down there alone. And he says, I want you to go there. I want you to go outside the kind of the normal protocols. I want you to be, uh, I want you to basically shout out to him when he's at the river. So my heart, imagine, or not my heart, sorry, my mind's imagination tells me that that dignitaries, ambassadors, people who wanted to be around Pharaoh would follow Pharaoh to the river, if nothing else, in order to show their dedication and their commitment, their loyalty to Egypt and to Pharaoh. Maybe they, they didn't necessarily have to take a bath themselves or worship the Nile God themselves, but they would go to say, we are here in support of this of this." Pharaoh. And so I don't think Moses was like by himself when he walked down here. Uh, I think he just, the Lord was like, I want you to basically go with the parade tomorrow. You didn't always, not everybody went every time the Pharaoh went, but many would if they wanted that opportunity to kind of casually bring something up to the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh understood this, and I'm sure sometimes he responds, sometimes he wouldn't, depending on who it was. So he goes down by the river. And he makes another request about the opportunity to go worship. And he says, this is what's going to happen. If you don't, I'm going to send flies. Now, what's weird in some, in some versions, I don't know if it's weird, but this is what we find. Like, let's just admit this, because some people, some I just know some people get freaky deaky about this and they're like, no, that's not what the word means. It means dung beetle, which again is fine. And some translations translate it as wild beasts. I know, right? I mean, I was like, wild be how do you, how in the, I mean, that's a big difference than flies. Wild beasts? Like that'll, that'll ruin your day real fast. I, it's it's uh, it's just one of those. Things. I just want you to know when you're when you're when you're in discussions with somebody who doesn't believe you know the Bible, this is some of the stuff that they point to. They're like, "See, you don't even know what you're talking about. The Bible doesn't even know what it's talking about. At least at some level, be able to say, I know, I know that there's some different what translations that occur. Translators make decisions as to what words are going to mean and how they're going to be written. And then those translators were translated again, and those translators were translated again. And then other people got involved, and not only, you know, once it finally got into English, 
it's been translated into English, what, 15 or 20 or whatever, hundreds of hundreds of times, different versions in English. Like there's, there's so many ways for this to go. And that's why I often will say, I believe the Bible is inspired word of God. But I don't necessarily want to say that it's inerrant because there are clearly differences like this. And you can't claim one translation as the only way that it's ever been translated because it hasn't been. And this is one of those little instances. So I'm going to stick with the fly or the dung beetle as as what's what's going on here because both were considered spiritual illustrations of life coming from death. Now, the dung beetle got its name because it would cr- it would uh, come out from poop, <laughs> from cow poop, from the dung, and it would crawl out, and it, uh, it does. It actually is kind of colorful. I mean, it's an ugly, I don't think it's a pretty-looking beetle, but the hard shell has a lot of different shimmy, shimmers to it, different colors that, that are kind of spectacular. And so I, I get it. Like they spiritually say, look, out of death comes life. Same thing with the, with the fly. I mean, I, I hate fly, maggot, wormy things that get into garbage. And, you know, as a uh, camp director, I've seen it a few times. And, and even actually at church uh, the, where I, you know, was... I, you know, I was I was these family life pastor, so of course I had to take care of the garbage uh, as part of my job after an event. And you know, there were sometimes you'd go out there to the dumpster and be like, <laughs> couldn't wait for the dumpster guy to show up and dump all these little things that were going to turn into flies. But again, from their spiritual perspective, it's like something of life comes from something that is dead, something that was garbage, something that was thrown away, dead meat, rotten meat. Uh, just births flies, right? And they come, oh, man, they cover it, right? So I understand why they, at some level, worshipped the the beetle or the fly. So in that, God's saying, I'm going to further show you my authority over idols and things that you look to for spiritual guidance. And I'm going to increase your ability to understand what I'm trying to say here. Not only do I have the ability to expose the negative that these things are bringing to your nation, I'm also going to show you my my authority and my power to protect those who come under my protection. And that right now would just be my people. I don't think God was trying to one-up and show his own arrogance and pride because God doesn't have those things. I believe God was saying, listen, if I protect my people, you'll understand that if you come under my, you know, under me, or if you come, if you come into this family, if you come into this part of the world, the Goshen area, you like, I'll protect you. Like I'm a protector. You're the things you worship. They attack, they overwhelm, they annoy they kill, they bring disease. That's what the enemy does. I bring protection. I bring protection. Exposure and protection. Those are now the two two things that God's trying to show here. And he says, Pharaoh, you're going to have a choice. Now, Egyptians already saw the Hebrews as, uh, you know, separate. 
They saw him as unwanted, unloved, even by their own God. They're like, you know, I'm sure they mocked them all the time. Not all the time, okay? I'm sure they talked to him as well. But they would, you know, if, if there was any opportunity, and maybe the Hebrews would talk about their God, they'd be like, oh, you mean the one that, you know, enslaved you? <laughs> the one who can't protect you? The one who, you know, allows us to beat you whenever we want to? Like, there was just lots of things that they could have pointed to and been like, see, God doesn't do anything. Your God doesn't do anything. And now they're looking at the Hebrews God and they're saying, look at what, you know, your God is so violent. Your God is so mean. Your God is so rude. And now they're going to see that, you know, their God protects them. Like actually they are going to be separated and it should be pretty powerful for them to see that. They are truly separate from the Egyptians. And I think it's an invitation for them to come and be a part of that nation. Just like the original, um, covenant with Abraham was. I will have you impact all the nations. So Pharaoh saw really no distinction on the right of the last plagues. The Hebrews, the Israelites, they got just they got just as nailed as everybody else. So, you know, for them, there were, you know, this request really had uh, no special connection to their God. Like when, when he, when he looked at the people, he's like, still your God doesn't do anything for you. So that's fine. If they're, if we're suffering, you're all, we're all suffering. Now there's going to be kind of a break in that line of reasoning. Pharaoh's going to have to distinguish. All right. Clearly their God can protect them. And clearly my gods can't protect me. So what are we going to do with this? Now, in verse 24, it says, And the Lord, uh, um, well, sorry, he, he says in verse 23, I will make the distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. So the, the tomorrow comes. Evidently, uh, you know, Pharaoh, he, he, I don't know, we don't have any record really of his response. I don't know if he dismissed what Moses had to say, if he ignored everything he had to say, if he just look toward Moses as he's yelling at him uh, from the riverbank and just smiled or chuckled to one of his assistants nearby. I have no idea. But then the next day comes and it says dense swarms of flies or dung beetles uh, poured into the, the Pharaoh's palace, into the houses of the officials and throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, please go sacrifice to your God uh, here in the land. So the flies came, or maybe it was, you know, the wild beasts, or maybe it was the dung beetles. I, 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 I don't know. It doesn't matter. Either way, it says that the, the land was corrupted. It was ruined. It was destroyed. Something that uh, this particular idol that they worshipped was destructive to the land. Now, the fleas or the gnats, they were annoying. The frogs were were just, I mean, that, that was just a horrible plague. But again, they didn't really cause the destruction of things like these did. So something bad happened here. And that's why some people think it is the wild beast because the wild beasts were like roaming and running and tearing through things like, like and destroying things. But dung beetles by the billions could do the same thing. They would suffocate things. They would chew things. They would break things as far as like the plants. 
They would, they would, uh, animals would become, would literally, uh, they would go crazy and they would, uh, we, we know this from just everyday life. Uh, animals that can't find relief from flies will off themselves. They will literally drive themselves mad and, and run off of cliffs or run into buildings like they cannot stand these things. So things came to ruin and in only one day, only in one day, Pharaoh calls to Moses. Now, now, I'm guessing he's feeling the pressure, right? This this one was bad. And the fact that everybody, not everybody, not because it wasn't like there was a news show or anything, but those who could see the land of Goshen could tell the, the Hebrews were not impacted. And legend would say that even if the Hebrews walked out inch, out of the land of Goshen, they were still protected from the flies, like a force field was around them. And so I kind of like that that legend, just because to me it's just kind of fun uh, to think about it. It may not be true, but but so are a few other things we've brought up. But I kind of think this would be kind of kind of an interesting conversation between Moses and Pharaoh if Moses is protected from the flies and Pharaoh isn't. So he's kind of got himself covered, I'm sure, with nets or or or. Uh, screens of some sort, and he's got people that are trying to keep the flies off of him. Because when when the flies are that thick, every time you breathe, they come in your mouth, and that's just nasty. They crawl up your nose; they're in your ears. It is. It is. It, it'll drive people crazy. It'll drive people crazy. Literally insane. And I'm sure spiritually, he's questioning why are his gods in inept impotent against God, the, this God of the Hebrews. Like the, the, the pressure is mounting on him to do something. The last one, you know, uh, well, two, two plagues ago, the magicians were like, we can't, we can't keep up. But they belittled God by saying, it's just his finger. Don't worry about it. Like he's just a little God. We'll, we'll eventually figure this out. Then the lice came and went, or gnats came and went, depending on what you want. And, and again, nothing from the magicians, no wise men, no, no spiritualists, sorcerers, nothing. This one, again, nobody's able to, to protect him. They can't bring incantations to, to match what God's doing in Goshen or to the Israelites. It's a, it's a really wild place for him to be in. And so he calls in Moses. And he says, all right, go sacrifice to your God, but stay here in the land. Now, that request doesn't seem that unreasonable at first, right? He's like, uh, Moses is like, well, that that's not, no, we can't do that. The sacrifices we offer to our, to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians and if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, they'll they'll kill us. They'll stone us, right? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded. Now, Pharaoh knows this to be true. He does. He knows that if they, if they go and start sacrificing lambs and goats and sheep and birds, all of these things are, or a lot of them at least, are considered gods to the Egyptians. They don't sacrifice these things. They're under governmental protection. They're under spiritual protection. Uh, 
And some some would say that Pharaoh made this request because he wanted Moses to fall for it. He wanted him to he want Pharaoh wanted to be able to say, well, I gave him an option, but he wouldn't take it. So I'm the good guy here. Moses is the one who's causing all these problems because I tried to I tried to work with him. He he wasn't reasonable. And Moses is like, listen, I'm not going to fall for this, Pharaoh. I'm not going to play politics. If we go to if we go somewhere in the borders of Egypt and we start sacrificing animals that you hold sacred, your people will kill us. You know this. I mean, that's that's basically what he says. You you know this. We have to go three days into the into into the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, all right, fine. I will let you go offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness. But don't go very far. In other words, stay very close to the border where I can keep an eye on you. And as soon as you leave, I pray. I, hey, well, Moses says, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow, and I think that's kind of a throwback to when Moses let Pharaoh decide when the frogs were going to go, remember? And, Mo, and Pharaoh was like, uh, tomorrow. He's like, all right. So he kind of sets the standard. He's like, so tomorrow I will pray. And the flies will leave, and Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure. Do not lie to me again by not letting the people go uh, offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked, and the flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people, and the flies, but not a fly remained. But this time also the Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So Pharaoh agrees, but he asks, you know, he asks, please don't go that far, right? Moses basically says, I have no problem praying for the flies to leave, but please don't lie to us again. Because that is, uh, it's just not appropriate. Like you're, you're causing more trouble. Why? Because the enemy gets, every time we behave in the character of, of darkness, lying, pride, uh, you know, dis- uh, lust, like anything, greed, all that stuff. It empowers the enemy. It makes him more powerful. And I think Moses's request isn't like, listen, I'm tired of you lying to me, bro, and I'm going to come at you. You do that again. It's like, listen, Pharaoh, you need to stop lying because you're literally making it worse for yourself. Look, at, we're protected. Our God's going to take care of us. You've unleashed... You've unleashed something. I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to make this worse. Stop lying. And and Pharaoh's like, I promise. Yeah, oh, yeah, I won't lie. So Moses prays the next morning. All the flies leave the country, which I'm sure had to look spectacular. And Moses, uh, you know, everybody's happy. Pharaoh decides, ah, I'm not going to let you go. Why? Why would he do that? Was he arrogant? Yes. Was he ignorant? I think so. I don't think he, I think in his pride, he had lost sight and lost insight as to what he was actually causing. And I I have to ask myself every time, like, what if Pharaoh had kept his word? What if he had, what if he had said, no, guys, you know, uh, I promised them they could go. If the flies disappeared, they kept up their, their end of the bargain. I'm going to keep up mine. But like any any uh, 
prideful person, right? They don't consider breaking the word as something of breaking the word. Because I'm sure Pharaoh looked at this and thought, no, I don't, I don't have to follow through on what I said because I still told you what to do. So you are still a servant of me. But if he had kept his word, like literally think about it, just for a moment, we'll take a moment of silence. No, I'm only kidding. Think about that opportunity. They get to go worship. They sacrifice to God. And, and the na- they do it very close to the border, like, like requested. And the people of Egypt, the officials that are watching them, the armies that are watching them, the Pharaoh that is watching them, they see the, what the presence of God can bring. They see supernatural activity going on. They see power and love. They see unity and freedom. It could have literally rocked the world. But he didn't. Did Pharaoh feel trapped? Maybe. Did he? Did he think that, you know, uh, it would, uh, you know, Moses would look like he's in charge if I say yes? Um, did he think that these immigrants would come back thinking they deserve deserve more land and less work and like, am I going to lose property? You know, I, I I don't know. I don't know, but I think so. I think so many arrogant people feel trapped by their arrogance. I really, really do. I think, I think arrogant, prideful people, when they, when they are in essence alone, whatever that may be, doesn't mean they're not in a crowd of people, but when they have those, those moments of, of um, connection to their, to their being, to their purpose, to their identity, I think they feel very alone. Because when you run at that level of pride, you literally have no one no one to depend on but yourself. And you know that even though you won't admit that you're wrong, you know that you are wrong sometimes. And you don't have the freedom to admit it. You don't think you do anyways. And in that entrapment, uh, you, you, you're entrapped by your own victimization and pride. It's, it's, it's a horrible bondage. And I wonder if when he said no to Moses, if he said, no, you actually can't go. I wonder if, if you know, he, he said it and then he turned around and, and, and wished with all his true self, he wished he could have said yes. I wonder if he said, no, you can't go and thought to himself, I, I have no other choice. Because that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to make you think you have no other choices. And that the way that the Lord is providing for you, the invitation to get off of the path you're on and choose the path of light and life is too hard, too difficult, would take too long, and there's just no use going forward. But (laughs) that's a lie. And God does provide a great way forward. And God does provide freedom. And God does give you a highway of light and life. And you know what? We're going to see what happens next. Oh, my goodness. Just wait till next week. All right. Just wait. Just wait. The next The next episode is coming soon to an epic narrative near you. No, to a po- podcast. To a podcast platform near you on the epic narrative. Have a great day, everyone. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts.
Well, now I hope you all enjoyed that uh, that episode of the epic narrative. <laughs> uh, I tell you, it's it's uh, sometimes I, I think I'm weird for enjoying it as much as I do. I, I listen to it usually three times by the time it it hits the airwaves. Uh, and I think every time, oh, oh, I like this part. <laughs> I'm like, and then I have this internal conversation. Bob, you uh, already, you one, you researched it. Two, you outlined it. Three, you spoke it probably three or four times to yourself before you recorded it. Then you recorded it. Then you listened to the raw footage. And you do the Bob thoughts. And then you listen to it live. Like it's, oh my gosh. And every time I think, oh yeah, I remember this is a good story. But that's the way I think the Bible should be. And not that not that everyone should listen to me tell the story, but it should be that kind of interaction. When you get to the Bible, you should be like, wow, oh, I remember this. This is so good. And you pick up something more. You pick up something deeper. You, you find a truth that you knew, but now it's supported a little better. And now maybe you have a, an example to follow. Or sometimes, you know, you just come up against something negative and you say to yourself, all right, I know better. I know better now and I know why. Or my perspective was a little off and now it's straightened out, or at least straighter. <laughs> Do we ever get fully straightened out? I, I don't know. Uh, I do hope um, I didn't I didn't last or languish too much on the hierarchical system of government and churches that cause a lot of people to um, yeah to just to just languish when it comes to being uh, released and empowered. You know, so many times a hierarchical system will talk about the fact we want to empower you, we want to encourage you, we want to release you into your calling, into your destiny. But the reality is that is only true if it coincides with the re with their destiny and their calling. It takes a very unique leader or leadership group to have the humility to, to give people authority and to actually empower them to do stuff. And I, I know that they exist, I do. Uh, but uh, they, 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 they aren't as prevalent as they, I think they should be. But maybe in listening to the epic narrative, you are going to become one of those amazing leaders. And uh, for that, we will all be grateful. Uh, some people were wondering about an update on my teeth. Uh, currently, currently, I still am missing two front teeth. <laughs> Uh, we hope to have, we're, we're going to be on the move in a few day, in a few weeks. We're going to be on the move from Florida where we've worked all summer and it has been delightful. I love hot weather. It has been an amazing summer of multiple weeks of triple digits. I had a great time. But we are going to move uh, for a season. Ironically, we're moving north. I'm uh, going to hang out with my mom. And my sister and her family, uh, we're going to be up on Long Beach Island uh, for the winter. We can't afford to stay there when the summertime comes because rent is astronomical. But we are going to be out of the RV and in a uh, two-bedroom apartment. Uh, we have to look for jobs. We have to whatever. God is good. Stuff will happen. I'll keep you updated. But, yeah, we're headed up there. 
and I hope hope to find a, a, a dentist up there that will continue the work. We came close to getting more work done down here, but um, after three months of healing, this particular dentist was not comfortable with continuing the process and to refer me just means starting over down here and we can't do that so because we're not going to be here so we'll have to find a dentist up there until then i speak with a lisp i <laughs> hope you're having a great day everyone if you can uh kindly support us or encourage us financially there are links available in the description of the podcast as well as my website thebobswitzer.com I hope you have a fabulous day and I look forward to hearing from you and letting you hear me next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.